Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, day 46. Today we're going to dive into something a little closer to pure play than previous days. We've done a lot of exercises that produce straight up prose and some of the, you know, I admit some of the ones that you've done recently have been quite complex and challenging and I, you know, I don't mind stretching you, but, um, well, you know, that is part of the reason we're here, um, you know, to, there's always a danger that you start slightly evaluating what you're producing against the arbitrary and bizarre standards of published books on your shelves. So it's very healthy, I think, at least to return periodically to some work that doesn't resemble a novel at all. So we can set those expectations aside and really train our creativity. What does it mean to not be able to say something? to not be able to put words to a feeling. I don't know if you've ever had the feeling of glancing out the window or walking down the street and there's a, a sudden quality of light, a familiar mood, some sadness in what you're witnessing that rhymes with an older something you cannot name. Maybe it's touched a memory so buried under the detritus of years that all you're aware of is it's resonating in sympathy, like a phone buzzing in a laundry hamper, Maybe some lesser travelled service tunnel of your synapses fired by accident and now you're seeing the world with all the subtitles switched off or uh, as if through the eyes of a time traveller sent back to pluck a foxglove before the apocalypse. But you know it, right? Like, it's not quite deja vu. Just this temporary strangeness that exists only in your head and, and you couldn't pass it on, not even to people in the same room. I feel like one of the roles we take on as authors is is the great articulator, attempting to give shape and form to unnameable feelings like this one, or at least gesturing towards them so that other human beings understand that there are other people out there gazing at the same moon. Or maybe we invent some new feelings no one's experienced yet, locate them in an unused part of space and turn readers' attention towards them. Your writing doesn't have to be about simply reproducing the world, stapling life's butterflies to the page. One of fiction's gnarliest joys is the realisation that we can take the apparatus of language, nominally invented for sensible purposes like explaining where the nearest clean water source is or barking orders, and put events and experiences in people's minds that not only did not happen, but perforce could not happen. In his book, Heart of the Original, one of my favourite authors, Steve Aylett, talks about this potential. Quote, you can enrich the stuff of life by bringing together two words which have never, ever been introduced to one another before. Perhaps because they dwell in different contexts or in the jargon of different disciplines, they are never held in the intention at the same time. Yet when put together, their cogs mesh as if they were made for each other and a massive amount of energy is released. This lexical love story is great to be part of. How else would they have met without you playing Cupid? End quote. I really like that idea of word matchmaking, grabbing a word from here and a word from here and seeing what happens when you combine them. Allen Ginsberg became fascinated by the juxtaposition of contrasting colours in Cezanne's watercolours. So as your gaze passed from one to the other, you received a little jolt. He called these moments of contrast eyeball kicks and he tried to replicate the effect in poetry sticking two words together from very different domains and seeing what happens and to be honest sometimes the effect is garbage like it sounds like someone trying to be clever or shocking or surreal Ginsberg's favorite example was hydrogen jukebox which is 
well, you know, you might feel either way about it, right? Like sometimes doing this technique, you split your audience. Some readers find the collocation funny or vivid. Other people don't, you know, maybe because they feel a bit threatened, like you're trying to trick them. Maybe because they've trained themselves to interpret anything that doesn't cohere to existing patterns as a mistake. Maybe just because the relevance just it just doesn't produce anything. It just seems absurdly pointless. You know, I can't believe I've left it 46 days to say this, but I've got to break it to you, actually. Sometime, sooner or later, you're going to have to work out who you want to please. And here's the bad news. You can't say everybody. Or you can, you'll just fail. He who chases two rabbits catches neither. Doesn't mean you have to set out to alienate people. You know, you don't have to be like, flip you, grandpa. I'm going to shock you with my groovy tunes like nor does it mean you have to valorize being willfully obscure as this act of huge moral courage it's just that there is no archimedean point of absolute solidity upon which you can stand and lift the world before i lay out today's exercise by the way i want to quote steve aylett one more time because i think this is really excellent writing advice and it gets to the core of what I'm talking about today. But with what I just said in mind, do remember the purpose of this cause isn't for me, Tim Clare, to sort of brainwash you and replicate myself or my style or my tastes. It's not to create people who like, who write like me. And to be honest, you know, my, what I value in writing and what I aspire to might not actually be what my writing turns out like, right? Like we can have goals Or we can have stuff that we think we do, you know, just like someone can think that they, you know, they can think that uh, a certain artist or, you know, a certain rock star is really cool and imagine that they're copying that person and actually actually fail to do so and come out in a completely different way. You know, like at points in this course, and some of those might have come already, I'm going to give you advice and that advice might not sit right with you. And it is okay. It's healthy. I even want to go so far as to say it's semi-mandatory that to an extent, you rebel against what I tell you. Do the opposite, pervert it, or strip it for parts. I'm just throwing stuff to you that you can use. How you use it is up to you. And also, it's just a cop to be very open to my biases, where I'm coming from, so you can adjust for that. You know, don't even censor yourself thinking, you know, would Tim criticise me for this? Would Tim think this was wrong? Yeah, I might do, but screw it, I think. You know, if I want something different, I can jolly well write it myself, can't I? Right, so here's the last abridged quote from Aylett, also from his book Heart of the Original, that I I think speaks to some what might be going on with Ginsberg's I will kick technique, playing with contrasts and similar strategies. Quote, When the mind has to jump a gap, the spark it ignites can tickle the brain's surface or ignite unused pathways depending on the guidelines placed on either side. The musician Theolonius Monk was frustrated that the fractional and hybrid tones he heard in Indian music were not on his keyboard, so he struck the keys on either side to suggest them. Poets use the same dodge by staking images on either side of a feeling they cannot point to or describe directly. Write three sentences and remove the middle one. Often the deleted sentence is implied 
by the remaining material. This is great for satire, as when readers fill the gap, they think it's their idea. End quote. Maybe this is what's going on when we juxtapose contrasts. Our brain, a pattern-finding machine, tries to find the link between the two items. Or more accurately, it makes a link between the two items. Zap. Two formerly disparate areas of brain now have a zip wire running between them. Suddenly the botanists are forced to share office space with ibex-headed cultists. The music box fills with cress. This is brain training par excellence. The uh, cultivation of a spectacularly liberated kind of thinking. A creative mode the vast majority of mainstream Western culture views as useless. Perhaps it is, you know, for conventional values of useful. So today's exercise is basically literary speed dating. It goes like this. First, you're going to generate two lists of words. Cool, specific words. One list is going to be nouns, concrete things, piano, busker, medal, hieroglyph. But even then, when I tried to list four random words, you know, I'm being random. Did you notice how each one was subtly linked to the previous one? Like, every time you write a word, it evokes a domain and the reader's mind orbits that little solar system. Or maybe they weren't linked at all, but the brain is so good at finding connections that it retroactively created them. And now the sequence, piano, busker, medal, hieroglyph, feels inevitable to me. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Like, maybe you, it's impossible to come up with a list of four items where they don't feel like they have some organising principle. So you're going to create that first list of nouns, concrete nouns, interesting ones. This other list, the second column, is going to be adjectives. So those are describing words or words that can stand in as adjectives. So ugly, cinnabar, melodramatic, victorious, Belgian, drowning, illiterate, copper, Soviet, explosive. You don't even have to know what a word means. Gable, carom, spline, idiopathic, avuncular, matriculating. Words you just like the sound of are especially great. Some of your favourite words might pop up here. But it would be cool if you could consciously try to grab stuff from across domains. Words you associate with different genres, different professions, different eras. Cybernaut, tiller, verso, titanium, chrysalis. Words that feel good in the mouth. Marsupial, groin, jerry can, bazooka. You know, you might actually start centering yourself because part of you worries that your choice of random words reveals some inner part of you. You know, you start blocking yourself. It's like, it's like these words, because I'm saying be random... Um, you can start worrying that they're like a Rorschach ink blot. Believe you me, I felt briefly awkward about sharing groin and bazooka because it felt aggressively sexual. They were words I came up with randomly, but or semi-randomly, but I was worried you might think either that I was trying to be saucy or that my mind just moves towards the thirsty and you might start worrying your list is too silly or too self-consciously artistic or pretentious that your words aren't clever or worthy enough or in or that you might worry that they're insufficiently varied unfortunately i i'm not able to completely liberate you from that kind of self-censorship by saying don't do it but if it happens 
all I can say is it's a learning opportunity. Try to notice what you're resisting when you're making these two lists and what you're telling yourself. This can alert you to what your creative anxieties are and it's actually a great clue as to the causes of the times you've been blocked in the past. So two lists, concrete nouns and interesting adjectives. Try to get as many words down as you can. Better to have loads and some of them be crap than to have like three perfectly formed jewels. I'm going to give you eight minutes. Then I'm going to come back to give you instructions to the very, very short final part. So two lists. One of cool adjectives, that is to say describing words. One of cool nouns, that is to say concrete things. Good luck. Three, two, one, a go.
Okay, so hopefully you have got some interesting words uh, listed and collected by now. For the final two minutes, you're going to do some textual speed dating. Take a noun from your list of cool nouns and experiment with pairing it up with interesting adjectives. You might even try combining a noun with a noun or an adjective with an adjective. There's no rhyme or reason to this. You might be tempted at first to find combinations that match, that you know feel like they're from similar domains, that make sense. But really, it's better to just do it at random, seeing which ones sound good together. Ones that when you put them together, as Ailit phrased it, they're cogs mesh as if they were made for each other. Okay, so just write down some combinations. That's it. That's the exercise. No more sophisticated than that. But you've only got two minutes, so do it fast. Ready? Off you go. Told you it'd be quick. You're done. So there, there's um, there's really no points to this exercise beyond finding satisfying fizzy new combinations of words. Now, the practical application of how you'd move this into your actual fiction might not be immediately obvious. That's fine. I think it's actually good to have some things that are intrinsically useless. I think that's what art is, really. But, 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 but there is a point to it. I'm just saying the point is not the point. Look. This is the thumping our atrial chamber of creativity to bring something into beginning into being that didn't exist before. Drowning piano, cinnabar chrysalis, ugly bazooka, marsupial hieroglyph, titanium illiterate. If you find some part of yourself sort of wincing at all this, like we're about to start snapping fingers in appreciation of how incredibly sophisticated and naughty we are, um it's cool you can feel that way. I'm not saying you can't. I, I, you would just more like to pay attention to that self-censoring impulse. Maybe stuff like this without 
an obvious purpose beyond delighting in the sounds and associations of words makes you feel a bit vulnerable. It's only pretentious, though, if we imagine ourselves to be superior to others simply by virtue of playing with language. If you just, I don't know, if you just take pleasure with it from it, that's cool, right? My friend the poet, uh, Ross Sutherland, does a version of this exercise where after putting these words, word combinations together, he gets writers to turn them into metaphors for some of the most clapped out objects of traditional poetry, like death, love, the moon. It's his contention that our brains are such accomplished meaning-making machines that you can shove almost any word pair onto the end of one of those concepts and create an image that makes sense. Like, um, death is an ugly bazooka. Love is a drowning piano. The moon is a cinnabar chrysalis. You might like to try that with some of your combinations. You can also try framing them as band names or varieties of fungus or if you stick the in front they often sound like convincing if somewhat esoteric titles for novels or poetry collections the marsupial hieroglyph the titanium illiterate all i'm trying to do here is reawaken you to the joy or at least the interest of playing with language for its own sake this is a strong spice to be sure but putting just a pinch of it in your stories can transform them from something standard and undistinguished into a fluxing psychedelic haymaker that phases into an into existence an inch from the reader's chin and uppercuts them backwards into a glitch between walls. For many of us, seeing something genuinely new is a very weird experience indeed. That's it for today. Sorry for running a bit longer than normal. This was one of the biggies and I wanted to get it right. Tomorrow will be shorter. You have my oath, dear friend. Take care. I love you. See you tomorrow. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.